My name is Susie. I have three children, the youngest of whom struggles with anxiety, depression, and suicidal ideation. I never thought this could happen to me, and I miss the signs. Being a parent is really hard, but I'm here to help. I'm talking to other parents and experts to help you with the struggles that your kids may face. I want you to know that you are not alone and there is hope. I'm not a physician, therapist, or counselor. I'm just a mom. I want to see you smile again, take away that pain in them clouds that keep covering up the sun. On this episode of the Just a Mom podcast, I am truly honored to be joined by Dr. Brian Barash. Dr. Barash, thank you so much for joining me on this episode. Thanks for letting me be part of this, Susie. I'm happy that you agreed to do this interview because I feel like there's a lot of misinformation, lack of information about psychiatric care, and we're going to really delve into that in this episode. If you would, just tell us, first of all, what you do, what your training is, and what your qualifications are. Okay. Um, we would need a long, long afternoon to get through all of it, but um, but I trained at the University of Kansas. Um, I'm a KU person. Through and through. Through and through. I did my medical school there. I stayed there for internship and residency and fellowship, and KU um, gave me a great you know, training in, in, in psychiatry and general psychiatry and child and adolescent psychiatry. So I'm board certified in both of those areas. And then I also um, am board certified in addiction medicine. Okay. So my background, um, I, um, I'm an inpatient and outpatient psychiatrist my whole career. Um, I have had a private practice. Uh, we're based out of North Kansas City, Comprehensive Psychiatric Associates. Um, I'm one of six psychiatrists that are part of this group. Um, but I've also been involved with a lot of hospitals. And uh, when I was early in my career, I got an opportunity to be involved with a residential center that had been around for almost 100 years. Wow. Na- named Marillac Center. Yes. At the time, I didn't know it, but Marillac um, got evicted from their, their space back in the days when Health Midwest sold oh, to HCA. Sure. Mm. And at 2826 Maine, Marillac was co-located with one of the Health Midwest psychiatric hospitals known as Trinity Lutheran. Mm-hmm. Trinity and and, and and that entire square block was sold to the Federal Reserve. And so Marillac had six months to vacate. The board came to me and said, we want to start a hospital. And so we started a children's psychiatric hospital out in Overland Park, Kansas, and fought the resistance in Overland Park and located at uh, 8000 West 127th Street in Overland Park. And so... I was the first doctor there, and I was the only doctor for the first several years. And as Marillac got off the ground, um, we we became too big, and uh, I still had my private practice. But my partners and I decided to start a hospital up in North Kansas City called Sign- Signature Hospital. So Signature Behavioral Healthcare, as it's now known, um, is where we're at currently. So, so I provide psychiatric care to adults, uh, kids, um, people of all ages, uh, people who have co-occurring illnesses, dual diagnosis, addiction, all, all kinds of things. And, um, and I'm honored and privileged to be able to do that. Let's talk a little bit about the dual diagnosis. Yeah. First of all, define what that is. Please. So dual diagnosis, by definition, is somebody who has a co-occurring diagnosis, which sort of raises the ante, it raises the bar, it makes things more complicated. So we think of patients who are, are bipolar, for example, 
And between 40 and 60% of bipolar patients also have other things like ADHD, um, addiction, substance use disorders, um, things along those lines. And the longer that these conditions fester, the more likely it is that they get into other things. So I always say that, that kids, you know, it doesn't matter how young they are, um, are always going to get their needs and their wants and their desires met. They're going to either get it by getting pats on the back, making good grades in school, coming home and, and having, you know, warm relationships with their families, or they're going to get it through negative means. Uh, that might mean breaking rules, stealing, lying, whatever. So the longer that things are allowed to fester, they're going to get their needs met one way or the other. And so sometimes it'll, it'll show itself in childhood. Sometimes it presents in adolescence and sometimes it presents in adulthood. Interesting. I wanted to push into that a little bit because I've had several guests on the podcast who have children who have struggled with addiction as well as mental illness or a mental health problem. And most of them, they discovered the drug use before the mental illness. That is a very common presentation for sure. You see all ages. Yes. There is a mental health crisis in our country right now. Why is that? Well, I think one is um, oftentimes um, depression, anxiety, suicide, all the things that, that are on the front page of the papers these days, things that are happening in schools, uh, violence, aggression, um, political um, you know, issues around um, you know, throughout, throughout the, the country and the world, actually. Um, all of these things are at the forefront, and, and, and they're becoming more commonplace to talk about. Um, it doesn't mean that it wasn't there before. Um, people are handling things in different ways. Um, I, I, think, I think if we go back to its fundamentals, I, I think a lot of these children who are out there now are coming from families that don't have mothers and fathers that are in, under the same roof. And uh, many of these children are lucky to have one parent, and usually it's a parent who's working day and night and don't have necessarily the, the structure and the supervision. And while we always say to parents, you know, they come to me, what's the single thing you would, you would advise me to do? And I always say, know your kid. Know, where, know who your kid is, know where your kid is, know who they're hanging out with. Um, try, try to know those things because if you can answer those questions, in general, you've got a firm understanding of what's going to happen next. But many of us you know, go to bed at night, and sometimes as parents, you know, we worry about that telephone ringing and not knowing what that, that phone call is going to bring. And, and so oftentimes if we go back to the basics and we figure out what our kid's doing, where they're at, who they're, who they're hanging out with, that's such an important part of all this. So you're saying that there are external factors as well as internal factors that play into mental illness or mental health problems. A absolutely. There's no question about it. And we know that there are biological factors, genetic factors, as well as environmental factors that, that each play a role. We know that, for example, um, depression affects one at basically in five people in their lifetimes. One in five people who do not have a first-degree relative with depression are going to suffer from severe major depressive disorder requiring some sort of intervention. The lifetime prevalence is 20%. Wow. That's with no family history. <laughs> when you do have a family history, that percentage skyrockets. So if mother and father, you know, or sister or brother or somebody else has mental illness, you know, going on, any mental illness, 
predisposes them to a subsequent mental illness in the next generation. And so those are very important things because if we understand and we know about it and it's commonplace and we're able to talk about it at the kitchen table, you know, when we're feeling, feeling down and feeling out and it's not a taboo, um, I think, and I think that, that part's gotten better, I think. Do you, do you think amongst parents that part is better? I think, I think the ability to say, you know, it's okay to, to say I have depression, I think that's an important thing. Mm-hmm. Susie, I say that um, I, tell, I tell parents, I tell kids this frequently. Uh, many people have heard me say this. But um, as, we, as we go down the road of life, we're basically born with a menu, a menu of options and things to do. If we think about the menu of options and things to do long enough, we'll realize that um, coping skills and ways that we get our needs met are on that menu. When a mother or a father or a first-degree relative commits suicide, for example, the chances of a child you know, going down that road before they're age 25, if they lose a parent prior to the age of 25, they are indelibly inscribing in the menu of life that suicide is an option when you feel hopeless and helpless. Mm. And who amongst us in our lives hasn't felt at some point in time hopeless and helpless? Right. And so talking about it, discussing it, discussing alternatives to it, that's very important. So we have somebody who may come in and, and with, after a suicide attempt, they may have small children at home. Maybe they've got a, a failed relationship, you know, and they may say, well, my kids don't need me in their lives. There is no equation by which a child is better off, you know, without their parent for any reason whatsoever. So um, I, I go back to some of my earliest years at Marillac Center where we had children who were born um, and raised in such horrific environments, children who were found in cages by social services, children who were raised in, in such horrific environments that, that it would be difficult for any of your listeners to, to really hear the actuality mm-hmm. of, of what I'm saying. But one of the things that I found with all these kids is they all shared one thing in common. They all still loved their parents. Mm. Even if you and I might think that their parents weren't the best parents, you know, that they, they didn't provide the, the nurturing and safe environment for their kids, the kids don't feel better off as a result of not having them in their lives. Mm-hmm. And so that, that's what I'm talking about, this, this important consideration about that menu of life. They, they, you know, we, we have to think about that. That's, a, that's a, a significant obligation on all of our parts you know, to be able to provide for the kids, you know, for our children in that way. I do want to push a little bit on something that you said in terms of environment does play a role for sure. Now, I've been told many times by professionals that our son Will's struggles, mental health, mental illness, depression, anxiety, suicidal ideation, well, that was not our fault. That's right. And I think a lot of parents do feel like it's their fault. Yeah. What would you say to that? I would say that, you know, while it's very easy if you've got multiple generations of family members, you know, who have bipolar illness or depression or anxiety to say, okay, this must be a biologically inherited kind of thing. Yes, in fact, a good amount of the time we can't figure out the whys. We refer to that as essential. So an essential diagnosis basically means that that 
we don't really know why they feel the way they feel for their depression or whatnot. Um, if a patient presents in that way, um, we often don't know. But but the important thing about talking about it is is about siblings, family members who may also experience these symptoms down the road, or maybe have in the past and just haven't put in a face and a name together, basically. And so it's really just just getting that discussion out there, if you will. But yes. I, I do think that, that it's important to say that not everybody understands why, uh, why they feel that way. When Will first got sick, or it first came to our attention, when we were asking the whys, how did this happen, how did we not know, you know we are an intact family, two parents, loved our, love our kids, we're doing the best we could with them, and yet this still happened. That's right. Sometimes you, you, it doesn't make any sense, and sometimes you just don't know why. So, but that doesn't mean that it's not there. Right. That doesn't mean that they don't have the issue and don't, don't need immediate intervention in, in many cases and don't need the supports. And, and, and you know, that's, that, that's a key thing. What do you think about the iPhones and mental health and social media? Well, um, as you probably know, I, I'm involved and have been involved with lots and lots of different cases of kids who I've had children who we had to get the FBI involved and, and, and had to because they disappeared and were found in truck stops in North Carolina. Mm. I've had all kinds of different kinds of cases of kids who've been involved or victims or, or assailants with, with different kinds of um, horrific, you know, kinds of abusive behavior that um, that's downright beyond bullying. That it's you know it's it almost is a form of assault. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, I I think that that's an example of a, we need to know what our kids are up to. We need to know what they're doing, and I feel that in the computer age, oftentimes many of us as parents, you know, we're, it's beyond our our capacity to really understand all of it. So the kids have, can hit a stroke of a keyboard and, and, and completely wipe a screen as we're walking by and another stroke of the keyboard and everything's right there again. And so I think it's important to know who our children are hanging out with and who they're around. And I can't stress that fact enough. So um, what do I think about it? I think it's part of society. I don't think it's probably going away, but I think we need to educate ourselves and how to sort of follow our kids. Um, I've come in contact with a lot of kids who have um, these alter accounts mm -hmm. on things like Instagram right. and Facebook, and, and many of the parents have their, their true account, but they don't have their alter account that still has their generally their picture on it, but they've gone with a different name. They've added a, a letter, a cute little letter or some sort of symbol here and there um, to, to bring it so that they can't be searched. Um, you know, they only give it out to people they want, want to have it, and it's private and whatnot. That's an example um, of, of, of a lot of kids who are often up to things that maybe we as parents might think is, is not acceptable. And they're just always six steps ahead of us, technologically speaking. They are. And, I mean, I've heard of the alter accounts and whatever, but I wouldn't have a clue how to even find one of those or make one of those and that's where i think a program like screen sanity that's right and i had tracy foster on an episode how that is 
Screen Sanity is doing incredible work to partner with parents to help them navigate this whole digital world yes. because it is not going away. I don't think it's going away. I think it's going to get get more significant as we go. And many of these kids are savvy enough to, to, to know how to get out of the IP address that, 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 that the security applies to and, and, and get into another realm, if you will. Mm-hmm. Mm. Let's shift gears a little bit. I want to talk about medication yeah. and mental illness, mental health problems. You are a psychiatrist. That means you are a physician who can prescribe medication. Would you just address that for the listeners and distinguish between you as a psychiatrist uh, versus perhaps a nurse practitioner in psychiatry or another prescriber? Prescriber, yes. So, you know, medication. um, I I always joke that 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 nobody loves the medication more than me, but medicine for me is one small fraction of the pie. Medicine is. Um, different kinds of medications are, are, are very key for me. Um, I, I, I've been involved with lots of the development of a lot of these medications, and I have been for my whole career, um, and I know a lot about medications. But um, even with all of that, uh, medicine is one small piece of it. Um, I tell parents and kids, um, if we're, I tell adults as well, um, that let's not think of this as a forever and ever decision. Um, the decision to, to go down the medication road is a right now decision. The goal of this, we have finite goals. We want to try to make things better. If we're talking about depression or anxiety, are we moving our wheels forward or, or, or are we getting stuck? Have we tried other options? If yeah, I don't, I don't always start with medicine as a first line. I work with therapists, different kinds of uh, counselors and, and whatnot. There's many different disciplines that fall under the umbrella of, of a therapist. Um, and there's many people who aren't therapists that are actually therapeutic um, and, and are therapeutic people, uh, maybe, maybe through your church or maybe maybe a family member or whatnot. So, so some form of a therapeutic intervention has been tried. Um, and um, oftentimes we're still having a hard time making forward progress. We're finding ourselves in our lives getting stuck, you know? And just like the very first thing I said today, when you're not getting your needs met through pats on the back, through good grades, through positive, warm, you know, successes in your life, then bad things can happen. So we want to keep the wheels moving forward. And if it requires medicine to make that happen, then I'll, then so be it. But we don't consider a medicine a forever and ever thing. Now, very few medications that I would prescribe are forever and ever medications. Um, you know, and that's something that that's really key. I'd say the overwhelming majority of medications are here and now medicines with the idea that we'll do this for the next three to six months. I take life in three to six month bites. Um, and hopefully if all goes well down the road, we're able to say, Hey, we're having consistent successes. The wheels are spinning. We're moving forward. You know, we're making forward progress in our lives. We're at a point now where let's see how we do without it. Let's pull back you know, on the medication, not go to zero, but let's maybe cut it down by 25 to 50%. Make sure we're still doing well. If we're not, we know that we we need to to go back up. If we are, and oftentimes we are at that point, because what we want to do is we want to invoke a remission sort of state in an ideal world. Sometimes we can make somebody better with medication, 
but we can't make them put them in a state of remission, meaning that they continue to need medication. And there's an evolving body of research and familially that some people lack serotonin. Um, some people have abnormal serotonin receptor concentrations and things along those lines. And for that reason, we need to augment with a serotonergic sort of agent. And that's just one example. Um, and so medicine is a here and now decision. It's not a forever and ever decision. And, um, and sometimes we, we, we start medicine. We don't like the direction we're going and we pull the plug on it. And we, we, we think about like what happened. Did we think about, do we need to think about another medicine option? Do we need to think about another intervention? But I always pair medication with other therapeutic modalities and other interventions. I do think sometimes people, myself included, think, well, I can just take a pill and this will go away or this will get all better. Like if I have strep throat, I can take medicine for 10 days and it goes away. Well, um, there are very few conditions in psychiatry that we get this overnight sort of response. There are a few. But um, there are very few disease states that respond that way, and, and most of it is time, the tincture of time. Now, it's gotten a lot better since the original Prozac back in 1980-81. Um, we used to tell people four to six weeks, maybe two to three months, something along those lines. But now we see a difference usually within you know days to a week or two, something along those lines is what we would expect uh, with different kinds of antidepressant modalities. But um, but again, it's it's in combination. And I think that that's something that can't be stressed enough. I know I've been very open in talking about how medication is one part of Will's um, therapeutic journey, per se. And that was in tandem with a lot of one-on-one -on -one therapy, um, intensive outpatient treatment as well for a while. And how, to your point, it's not just one thing often that will help someone on the road to healing. And no two patients take the same road. So everybody mm. takes a different road. Every family, every case takes a different sort of approach. And that's the uniqueness of it. Every case is unique. So everybody has different strengths, different weaknesses, different things that need, need some extra attention and focus. It's encouraging to me to hear that there are some medications now that are acting more quickly than they used to, because that's so hard. As you know, you start a medication, you know, your kid's ideating suicide, and we've got to watch him like a hawk for four to six weeks to make sure he's okay before the medication and the therapy all kind of start making a difference. Again, um, I, I, I think that that Medicine is one piece of it, but for sure, we would expect to start to see differences within the first few days to weeks. That's you know, not... really encouraging. Yeah. I'm guessing that you are full and not taking new patients. Am I right about that or am I wrong? We, we're always taking new patients. Okay. I, um, I, 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 I'm going to tell you that our wait time is probably a month or two mm -hmm. out to get in. Um, but I, I do half, half my time is spent in the hospital uh, and the other half is spent in the clinic. Um, I've got partners who do nothing but uh, clinic-based stuff as well. So, and I think every practice that's kind of our size, medium or large practice in Kansas City has a similar sort of setup. 
Um, I think in Kansas City, relative to some areas, I know uh, with COVID, uh, many practices closed to new patients, but people nationwide are starting to open back up again. And in general, I expect the wait time between two or three months or so to be probably in line with the, the, the average. Um, I think we're probably about half of that, that time frame. What is someone to do if they have a mental health crisis and, you know, I can't get in to see you or one of your partners? So um, I'm probably going to make every hospital administrator mad at me in Kansas City. But um, if there was any part of this interview or discussion that we're having today that, that might be asterisked or, 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 or italicized or underlined and capitalized, it would be this. If you feel like you are in a situation in which you or your loved one is in a clear and present dangerous situation, don't call, go. Do not call, go. While you can go to the nearest emergency room, if your goal is to get to Marillac Center or to get to Crittenden or to get to Research Psychiatric Center, you should just go there. So um, I'm sure that their intake department is, you know, know, scowling at me right now, but um, licensing does not allow them to allow a patient who is suicidal or homicidal or has verbal or physical aggression or dangerousness to walk out the door. So don't call, because if you call, they're going to do everything in their power because of all the volume of patients that they have to divert. So um, I don't want my children my child to be diverted, and I don't want right. your child to be diverted. Right. So don't call, just go. Okay. And we've talked about that a lot on the podcast, where if you feel like someone is in imminent danger, 988 or... 988, or they say go to the nearest emergency room. However, you know, I, while I love my primary you know, colleagues out there in the emergency departments, I say primary because they oftentimes are the front line, and some people use them as, as their, their, their health care, if you will. And, um, but many of them are not equipped with the patience or tolerance for, for mental health and will, will meet, treat, and street those patients. And you know, I don't want my patient or my, my family member or your family member to be, to be treated that way. I want them to get the help and the intervention that they need. It requires a ton of time and cost for a hospital that does not have a psychiatric unit, a mental health unit, um, to get these people placed. And so you'll find them, they'll, they'll cast a net. If you go to a facility that doesn't have their own unit, they will cast a net throughout the, the greater area, and they'll go beyond. They'll go to, to Springfield, Missouri. They'll go to the to Royal Oaks, and, and they'll, they'll go all over uh, the area throughout Missouri and Kansas till they find a hospital that's willing to accept. But that's a very different scenario than you walking in the front door of the psychiatric hospital with your child, you know, in hand, if we're talking about kids or adults, mm-hmm. for that matter, with the patient and walking in and stating that I need help. And that's it. That's it. When you walk into that facility, um, you are their their problem, if you will. So, um, so I always tell people don't don't call the don't don't call don't go to the nearest emergency room if you can get them to the facility you would like to be at. Go there. Go straight there. Even if the facility is full, they cannot turn them away. Is that correct, Susie? Full is a relative term. So full is. Um, I mean, I. I Full is a, is a rather disingenuous term because full 
doesn't always mean full. So you have to ask for a definition of what the word full means. Does full mean that we've got a bed available somewhere in the facility? Um, I mean, I mean, I'm going to tell you that in most cases they have beds available and they've got uh, emergency beds for people who walk in because they can't find placement elsewhere. So if your goal is to get your child, you know, if we're talking about kids, but it might be, might be your brother or your sister. If the goal is to get them to the facility, walk in. Okay. Walk into the facility. So if you happen to be on a med surge campus where that facility is located, walk into their emergency room. You're safe there. So, but if your goal is to get into Crittenton, for example, and you decide to go into Overland Park Regional's emergency room, it's, it's going to be anybody's guess where you're going to be. You'll probably be in the ER for 8 to 12 hours if, if you're lucky, but you may be there for an hour and the attending might say, make a phone call on Monday morning and go call and, and, and send you home with the same problem that you arrived with. And so I always say, go. Don't call, but just go. Go walk in to the facility and tell them you need help. They have people on site to handle these, these kinds of things. They're professionals. And, and that's what I would recommend for you. I've talked to several parents who've taken their children to inpatient psych units. And every parent that I've talked to who has done that has said the hardest thing I had to do was walk away. Well, and, 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 you know, I'm going to tell you some differences that have happened as well in the community and and, and whatnot. So when I started Marillac Center, it was the, the goal of my board was to get kids into a state of recovery. So I was fortunate enough to work with CEOs and, and leadership and our, and our governing board who said to me, Brian, we will never, we're never going to put our finger in your face and tell you to get this patient out regardless of their insurance status and their ability to pay. Keep them as long as you need them to get them into a state of recovery so that we can do some family work, so that we can have several family meetings, not just one meeting, but several meetings. Let's, let's have an opportunity to, to, to work on recovery, not just crisis stabilization. Unfortunately, in the community, the, the, the push has moved now back towards crisis stabilization. My average length of stay when I left Marillac was one to two weeks, um, and the average length of stay now is back counted in a few digits on, your, on one, mm-hmm. one hand. Um, I mean, that is stabilization, but that's not going to get you very far. Um, so... So we really need to define what the goal of going to the hospital is. I mean, the goal of hospitalization in today's state, in this area, um, is really more, in my opinion, especially in the child and adolescent section, um, towards that acute stabilization factor. What can we do to diffuse the immediate situation, uh, you know, predisposing the patient and the family members, you know, to danger? And while a day or two or three might might be able to suffice. It's, it's probably not enough to, to, to be permanent without a whole lot of changes happening. Maybe it's somebody who doesn't yet have a psychiatrist or doesn't have access to a psychiatrist because of wait time or doesn't know how to access, or maybe they don't have the insurance funding or whatnot to be able to do it. Maybe they would only go through a community mental health center and they don't want to go through the rigmarole of an intake appointment and then maybe getting to, to a psychiatrist or to a mid-level. Um, you know, those are tough situations. Those are tough. And because hopefully the hospital can kind of get them some access. Uh, but 
in many cases, what they get is a phone number on a piece of paper that they are back at square one again, having to make that phone call, which is painful. That's a Absolutely. painful. But, um, but as a parent, you know, and in, 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 in I've listened to some of your your podcasts and I've heard people talk about the frustration and if they feel like they're banging their heads against a wall trying to get access. Um, and, and so, you know, it's important to follow through with it. It's important if we're thinking about suicide, if we're to talk about safety, if, if we're concerned that somebody is a risk to self or others, they need to get there. They need to go to that facility and and when it comes time to get that phone call a day or two or three or four or five days later, which again, to me, a day or two or three or four or five is still a very small amount of time in order to get you know, some significant change occurring. Um, if you don't feel like that your child is safe, you should say so. If you don't feel that as a parent that you have done the right amount of therapy or the right amount of medication adjustment, if you're concerned about it, you need to vocalize your opinion about it. You have the right to do that. So if you don't agree with the decision that your provider's making, ask to speak to a patient representative, ask to speak to an administrator of the facility, ask to speak and advocate. And I'm sure I'm making a lot of administrators happy right now, but it is what it is. So um, again, the goal is to diffuse the situation and to get, to get these kids and their families on, on, on the right path it's hard to do it, but it doesn't mean we shouldn't do it just because it's hard. So it's worth it. And I would think that the administrators would want people to get well. I understand a little bit um, about the business side of uh, running a, a hospital or a facility where there are financial considerations on the facilities. And But at the same time, if you have someone who is a potential threat to him or herself or other people, I don't know how you would feel okay about, you know, treating and streeting. I, um, again, if you're, if you're on their side of things, you have to understand that they're getting five and six and seven and eight and nine new patients a day uh, that are coming in the door and the volume is incredible. And, um, it's a tough, tough, you know, job, but, um, but they've chosen that job because that's the job that they want to do. And um, not everybody's cut out to be there that, that, that are actually there. But it doesn't mean that myself or you as parents, you know, need to accept that as a reason why we're going to, um, you know, cut our treatment short, if you will. So I think that we should be pushing to make sure that we have things in place. And um, so when that 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 doc calls or a resident a teaching facility calls and says you know we're we're going to discharge now if you don't agree with that discharge you should speak up so you should say i'm i'm not comfortable with it and then if the next threat is is well then i'll call social services on you my response is is please do i i you know, make that phone call because uh, i look forward to talking with them as well so that that goes both directions so again Advocating for our kids, advocating for our kids, being tireless advocators is what we're talking about here. And that gets discouraging as, as the advocate. Um, it can be discouraging, it can be frustrating, exhausting. And I've talked to several parents who, who say, I have a full-time job. How do I do that? I can't even talk to anybody because I'm at work. 
So I don't have the ability to talk to somebody between the hours of eight and five on my 30 minute lunch Yeah, when I can't even get through. Well, since COVID, many of these meetings are, are on lunch hour times and are done by Zoom and, and, and uh, up until May, it'll be FaceTime. Still, a lot of people are u- using Apple devices until May. And um, the co- after COVID m- emergency cancellation has occurred, that's no longer going to be happening. Uh, but um, but again, utilizing Zoom or some HIPAA compliant means of of, uh, of being able to communicate and 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 ideally visually. Now, you asked me a question that I didn't actually address um, about leaving your child and the stigma mm-hmm. of walking in the door and what a horrible feeling that is. Now, years back, most people probably listening don't remember a, a, an organization known as Menninger, the Menninger mm, Foundation. Sure. Um, I, I believe uh, most people kind of know that Menninger is more psychoanalytical, but in years past, uh, back when Menninger was, was a prominent, bustling you know campus in Topeka, Kansas, where they had Olympic-sized swimming pools and family members would families would move in there, and they, they would do treatment and family therapy and all kinds of stuff, and they would be there for weeks to months, um, and and you know it, it was it was truly a facility that was governed by the haves, if you will. Most most of us wouldn't wouldn't qualify or have the financial wherewithal to be able to do that, but but I think that that what was going on back then is instructive, as to what what we're talking about right now. We're talking about being able to deal with the dynamics of parents and siblings and kids and being able to get in and fix all those kinds of things, we do not currently have that kind of mechanism to be able to do it. That's, that's, that's a big, big problem. It is. And again, I've talked to several parents who have had children who have been inpatient in a psychiatric unit for three, four, five days, and then the child is discharged and the parent's saying, I don't know what to do now. And I've had parents who've, whose children have gone to wilderness therapies in different parts of the country or other you know, private paid treatment facilities for a long time because they can. Well, what about those of us who can't? Uh, I, I, I wish I had a magic answer because that is such a, a, a prevalent, you know, significant problem. Um, I don't consider a lot of the wilderness programs. I mean, I've been involved with some cases of, of, of some kids who were sent out to the wilderness you know, camps in, in Utah and in Colorado and have had some horrible outcomes as well. So just because they, they, they have the wherewithal to be able to go and do that doesn't mean that they're going to have, you know, some some magic sort of formula to bring bring back their child. I mean, sometimes, sometimes it leads to hard feelings and, and whatnot. So... Many of those facilities uh, sort of take kids in the cover of darkness in, in a white van and, and pick them up and pull them out of bed in the middle of the night. And things that um, that I think back in the sanitarium days they probably used to do back mm. in this area. So I don't know. I, I've got I've got mixed feelings about those programs. Good to know. Another thing I want to talk about, and you referenced this earlier when we were discussing medications. You were talking about some people have a lack of serotonin and that that can be addressed through medication. I've talked to a couple of parents who have done some genetic testing, um, swabs. Uh Uh-huh. So you're referring to something referred to as pharmacogenomic testing. Okay. Pharmacogenomic testing. And there's a lot of companies that piled on and have gotten involved with this. Um, 
you know, one of the things, um, there, there's, there's a gene that codes for um, uh, something called MTHFR. Um, yeah, it's a big, it, it's, a, it's an acronym for a very long uh, name for an enzyme, basically, that allows us to process um, something called homocysteine and, and folate in our diets. And if you, depending upon how many genes you inherit, um, that there's an increased predisposition to depression. And that's generally one thing that the pharmacogenomic testing tells us. It also tells us it goes through common psychiatric medications by class and tells us basically how I or you would metabolize that medication. It tells whether we're a fast metabolizer or a slow metabolizer. There, some companies have gone as far as to uh, slightly increase the possibility of giving us some, some, some response information based upon the genes. But I'm going to tell you that it's, it's not completely ready for prime time yet. So I don't, I don't generally do that right at the very beginning because um, I kind of keep it simple, stupid, as they say, um, because I want to um, utilize something very easy and simple uh, with somebody who has depression and anxiety. I'm not going to get too complicated with the medication. Um, but if I have to go down the road of polypharmacy, if we find ourselves on three or four different medications or if it's a patient who has a, a co-occurring me medical condition, maybe they've got um, uh, uh, autoimmune condition in which they're on a biologic and several other kinds of medicines, and we think about drug interaction concerns, that would be a good idea to get a pharmacogenomic profile for that kind of patient. But for somebody who's just on monotherapy with Lexapro, for example, I would be unlikely to do that. Okay. Um, it's, it's a... a, a I think it's around three hundred to four hundred dollars for most tests at this point in time. Your genes aren't probably going to change, so it's a one-time done and one and done. But I will tell you that even in the last twelve to eighteen months, um, lots of people are wanting to have that redone because of some of the increased data that these tests are giving us now. But it's just one real small piece, Susie. Anybody who says, "Oh, I want to go rush and go do that," I would encourage you not to necessarily, because I, I, I I'm, I'm going to tell you that it rarely is it going to change your course for, okay. for most for most people. Oh, that's good to know. Yeah. I'd like to talk about the distinction between what a mental health issue or problem and a mental illness is. Can you address that for us, please? Well, a mental illness basically is a diagnosed condition that follows the DSM-5. Um, and, and, you know, psychiatry, unlike all other fields of medicine, is really, and this is really the art of psychiatry, um, it is a collection of signs and symptoms. You have a certain number of signs and symptoms over a period of time causing a certain degree of impairment in social functioning, occupational functioning, academic functioning, life functioning, to, to then qualify you for a particular diagnosis. And, and, and again, um, it is a, um, there isn't a blood test or an imaging study. It isn't like your husband who can do an x-ray or, or a scan of somebody to tell that they have a broken bone or, or a ligament problem or whatnot. In my world, um, you know, we don't have those kinds of things for most most situations, and so we do have certain conditions out there like depression. We know that depression generally emanates from the left frontal lobe area. We know that certain disease uh, depression intervention, you know, kind of utilities like transcranial magnetic stimulation or TMS, TMS therapy using magnetic stimulation 
kind of a baby form of electric shock therapy or ECT, um, you know, to target that particular area of the brain. And we know that we have some empiric evidence from different kinds of um, imaging studies that the brain basically wakes up with treatment. So, but, but is it common? Is it something that you and I would go and do? Do we have an extra several thousand dollars you know, to go spend to get that test done? Because I assure you that Blue Cross and Blue Shield or United Healthcare aren't going to authorize the test unless you know, there's a dementia evaluation or something along those lines. So most of us can't get those kinds of, of studies done. Um, but that is where a lot of the research in psychiatry has gone uh, to look at those kinds of studies and those kinds of evaluations to see what, what kinds of differences we're making in the brain. Um, and I've gotten off the, beat of the, off the beaten path no, a little bit good. with you. Um, so you asked me about the difference between uh, a mental illness and a, a, a mental condition or whatnot. Um, we all deal with day-to-day issues in our lives, and I might ask my kids, are you having a good day-to-day? Dad, I'm, I'm really sad. I'm really upset. I'm having an issue with the sorority, or I'm having an issue with a friend, or, or whatnot. And those are examples of, of day-to-day sort of monitoring kinds of things that, that, you know, at its very root source might be leading in the direction, you know, of, of depression or anxiety, but it's day-to-day stuff. And, and, and that's, that's the difference between a disease like that meets the DSM-5 criteria versus day-to-day mental health sort of symptoms that sort of pop up and creep up. Now, granted, you and I, we've taught our kids everything we need, they need to know in their lives, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm more smiling. That's funny, yeah. <laughs> but in actuality, most of what our kids needed, we taught them in kindergarten. So as soon as they reached elementary school, almost everything in life that they need had already been delivered to them. So what we're doing as parents is continuing to follow them and monitoring them and assisting them through, but um, treat others as you would have them treat you and, and, and basic kinds of things in life, uh, doing the right thing, you know, kids know before, before they get to elementary school, before first grade. And, um, you know, as kids come back and they com- they complain of anxiety or depression or problems with friends, you know, while we as parents feel a lot of pain when our kids hurt, um, these are life skills and ad- adaptation opportunities for our kids. And so a lot of us will kind of reel backwards and say, oh, I wish our- my child wasn't having to do that. And we often know Lots of helicopter parents, you know, we've all probably been there from time to time, um, are trying to go fight those battles for our kids. But, but the the lesson with all of that is, is our kids have to figure it out. They have to figure out how to how to how to find their jam, if you will. How to how to how to find something, a group of people, perhaps. Oftentimes, kids are in the wrong groups, wrong crowds, and um, I think it's important that we we don't minimize that by, by fighting the fight for them. They, they've got to figure it out. We can help them. We can assist them with it, just like, just like we have ever since they were in elementary school. But doing it for them, maybe not. You know, the life skill of working it out and dealing with their day-to-day stuff, it's when things cross that red line. It's when we become suicidal, self-destructive, self-harming. Um, it's, it's when we, we, we change our friendships. It's when we start pulling out of organizations. It's when our grades drop. It's when all of a sudden, things that we thought that our kid was involved with, they're no longer involved with. We see abrupt changes in their personalities. When those warning signs happen, we've crossed over that line. 
that's when we need to start asking more questions. That's when we need to figure out what's going on. So, and at that point in time, if the answer is not sure, then we probably need to make sure we've got some professional help involved. So that's when we need to start introducing that counseling piece. And I tell parents, a lot of parents come to me and they say, like, how do we do that? Like, how do we have that conversation? Because the kids don't want to talk about this kind of stuff. That's all. I mean, I, I ask the question, they pretty much, you know, shun, pull me away, push me away or whatnot. And so my response to that is, is sometimes you need to get into some counseling. You as parents and go out there and get some help and figure out how to set good boundaries, good healthy boundaries, and also how to communicate that message in a warm, nurturing, but firm way. So, and, and I think that's, that, 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 that's very helpful because many therapists will tell you that, you know, if you really want to change your child's behavior, it starts with you changing your own. And so some of us as parents have to do that. Absolutely. And I think I've said this every episode I wish I'd heard all of this 26 years ago before I had kids and I would have started talking to them about more things to do with mental health at a young age. So then it wasn't some shock when Will started really struggling or, you know, he emailed his eighth grade counselor and that was who he went to for help initially because for whatever reason, he didn't feel comfortable coming to us. I hope that young parents are listening and that they hear us talking about how important it is to discuss feelings and mental health and mental wellness from birth. Throughout birth, because if we make it commonplace, if we make it an everyday kind of thing that we talk about it, how, it, it isn't just about what's new in your life at the, at the kitchen table, but let's be honest, not every not every family has dinner together. So, but... In a perfect world, we would have a day or two at least, you know, in a given week in which we would have, you know, parents and children together at the same time, you know, talking about their lives or whatnot. How are things going? What kinds of issues are we having? I mean, those are the, that, that's real stuff. That needs to be happening. And um, again, while the nuclear family may not be something that's intact, it doesn't mean it can't happen, you know, with, with single parents and sitting down with their kids once or twice a week if we can't be done more more often and just talking about it. So we normalize the behavior when we as parents, you know, self-disclose issues that we've had, you know, ourselves in our lives. And I love that you recommend counseling and therapy therapy for parents, because I know for myself personally, that's been crucial over the last almost six years that we've been on this journey uh, with Will. And I couldn't have sometimes gotten through some of the really hard times without that yeah. therapy. It's important. It's really important. I want to dig into a little bit more about intensive outpatient treatment, because we've talked about it multiple times on the podcast, but I, obviously you know a lot about it. And when is it appropriate to send someone to an intensive outpatient program versus an yeah. inpatient program? So there's multiple different levels of care, and we'll work in reverse. Obviously, uh, acute hospitalization is, 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 is the highest level of care. One step below that would be a residential treatment type of center. There, there are still those places that are around. They're hard to access, but they are still available and around out there. Um, 
The step below that is something referred to as partial hospital. So partial hospital is generally a five-day-a-week program. Um, Research Psychiatric Center has an adolescent uh, PHP program, a, a, a very good one. Um, but partial hospital program is generally five days a week. It's generally about five plus or minus hours per session, five days a week, Monday through Friday. Um, the next step below partial hospital is intensive outpatient, or IOP. And intensive outpatient is basically three days a week, usually three hours a day. Uh, with kids, it's generally after school. Um, usually they do not have weekends, but some I, I know of some programs that have, that, that have done weekends. Um, and, and, but, but it's generally the, the, the next step after the, the least restrictive, which is outpatient. So once we've tried outpatient, we've tried, to, we've gotten psychiatry and or therapy going, and we've really tried hard to do the individual stuff, sometimes the family therapy stuff. We've tried psychiatry when things really aren't going well at that point, or somebody has just come out of the hospital and needs some transition back to outpatient, we would utilize something in the middle, which is where something like IOP or partial hospital come in. Um, generally with partial hospital, you'll see the prescribing doc or mid-level nurse practitioner usually once or twice a week in a partial hospital setting. An intensive outpatient, you may not. Some programs include prescriber evaluations and some don't. Um, so you really need to ask that question. So if your goal is in an outpatient setting to get some aggressive, more aggressive med management than what you would get in an outpatient setting, seeing your psychiatrist every four to six to eight to 12 weeks, depending upon the acuity of the situation, uh, then partial hospital would be your next step. Um, it generally, an intensive outpatient, you don't get the medication management um, intensive piece that a lot of people are disappointed about, you know, when they go through and don't get it. And from what I understand, there are new and more intensive outpatient treatment programs, at least in our area here in Kansas City, uh, available, whereas that wasn't always the case. There are there are there are some intensive outpatient programs that are around the area for sure, but um, but there aren't enough. I will tell you that. So we are we are definitely un, un, underbedded. But um, and I say bed, even though right. we're talking about an outpatient setting, um, the, the resources are, are are still pretty limited. And um, if we're dealing with addiction, substance use disorders, um, you know, there's maybe a few more options in that regard than we've ever had in the past. And there are a lot of uh, organizations that are coming to town right now who are doing uh, the addiction recovery uh, sort of platforms. And um, there's there's one out in Lewisburg. There's uh, one in Osawatomie. There's several in the Kansas City area, the general area. So there are some there are some options that are out there. I would talk with your insurance company and see which ones are in network, because there's definitely some network affiliation that needs to happen for you to have some coverage there. And it's very expensive if it's not covered. It can be several hundred dollars a day. Mm -hmm. I mean, it would be cost prohibitive for most of us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, without having insurance coverage. What does a person do if they don't have insurance? I've asked this question all the time, and yeah. I love to get more information out to the listeners. Well, I mean, the good news is in both Missouri and Kansas, depending upon where you reside, where your address is, you are tied into a community mental health center or a CMHC. And um, I, I train with many of the docs that are in many of the different centers throughout Kansas City. And Kansas City has an excellent net wrapped around you. And, and um, 
you know, some people get frustrated with access. It's it's tough to get to get in the door. But once generally that you're there, um, you've got access to therapy. You've got access to psychiatry. Maybe it's going to be by way of a mid-level nurse practitioner or psychiatrist. You also have access to medication if you can't afford it. Um, they generally have all the best medication. Anything that's branded, they have. Um, they generally have samples of to give you uh, during your entire course. And and uh, and they also have access to get resources and case management for maybe maybe you qualify for Medicaid. Maybe you qualify for other uh, resources that are out there um, based upon your situation. Um, that they'll actually help you get set up with all of those kinds of things. So. So I think you know my, my recommendation to you, if you don't have Blue Cross and Blue Shield through some employer group or whatnot, that's okay. Um, you, 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 can get, you can get help out there through the mental health center. Johnson County, where we're residing now, Johnson County Mental Health has excellent psychiatrists, excellent nurse practitioners. They've got great therapy options, great case managers. They've got a lot of, a lot of resources that maybe somebody in private practice doesn't even have, you know, those kinds of access to, to those kinds of resources. So... And my understanding is that when a person in Johnson County with a Johnson County phone number calls 988, it goes directly to Johnson County Mental Health. The benefit there is that you're not talking to someone in another state. That person who's doing the crisis response can yeah. refer and say, okay, I think this is what you need to do. And here's how I'm going to connect you That's right. right now. They can, they've got lots of resources at their fingertips. They can actually get you into the hospital if necessary. They have um, several facilities that, that their own staff through Johnson County Mental Health actually go in and do their live assessments um, and, and partner with emergency rooms out there. So, so there's just a lot of, a lot of options out there. We're, we aren't at zero, so we, we've got lot, lots of resources. Where we live, yes. That is not the case everywhere, obviously, and no. we do have listeners all across the country, and they might not have the same really, really well-oiled machine county mental health program like we do, or they might live in a really rural area. That that's, does, that's far away. Yes. Yeah, and those that, that that's true. I will tell you that um, there are more resources now because of COVID than ever before with telehealth um, and, and utilizing Zoom and utilizing different kinds of uh, um, approved platform media. Um, people can, can, can get, get access to healthcare and therapy uh, by telephone and by video um, that way as well. There are a lot of these resources that are out there now that weren't before. Which is great because it it does bring down some of the barriers. It's to um, care. It's been amazing, and um, you know we're we're trying to figure it out going forward now that the COVID health emergency is gone. You know we no longer have COVID problems. Right, right? It just went away. Yeah, it's just gone. But uh, but but yes, I think that that's going to be here to stay for for many of the different companies out there. What about the provider shortage? Talk about that. There are definitely not enough psychiatrists. There is definitely not enough psychiatrists. There's not enough nurse practitioners, mid-levels out there. Uh, many areas throughout the country are utilizing PAs as well, mm -hmm. psychiatric PAs. Kansas City doesn't have a lot of that going on, but um, but you know we we are um, we are way underserved. There's no question about that. Um, they're trying. I mean, the number of, of residency positions and fellowship positions that they have at the different different programs out there, 
are more than ever. Um, in the state of Missouri, um, you're probably not aware of this, but the number of medical schools and the number of medical school positions has more than tripled in the last five years. Wow. Um, Kansas is opening up an osteopath school right now in Wichita. Um, it's going to add a significant number of doctors you know, to the, to the pile, if you will. Um, and there's a slight mismatch between the number of residency positions and the number of doctors that are in training. So we've got a ton of, of, of medical schools and medical school positions. Um, Kansas City University of Medicine and Biosciences, K KCU, here in Kansas City, in addition to the Uni University of Kansas, where I trained, um, they, they are the two juggernauts, but UMKC is huge as well, and they've got a residency program. Uh, they don't have a child and adolescent, uh, but they do have general psychiatry. Um, you know, we, we just don't have enough residency training positions out there to match the increase in medical medical doctors out there that are that are getting trained. So that's something that they're trying to address that they're looking at. Obviously that's going to require some federal funding. Um, we hear a lot of um, talk you know coming from our politicians in Washington DC and there's been talk for at least the last 20 years about this idea of parity, you know, giving mental health the same due and the same respect that you're giving every other area. Many people say that they're doing it. This would be one example uh, to sort of show us, you know, show show us the money, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, you know, increase the funding and, 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 and give them a reason and an obligation to do it to increase the training positions. I think that would take care of a lot. That makes a lot of sense to me, but what do I know? I'm just a mom, so. You're just, yeah, <laughs> yeah right. <laughs> Dr. Barash, are there any topics or anything that we did not talk about that you feel like you would like to bring up? I would just, the one thing that I, I, I would just bring up is that this idea of trickle down with mental health kinds of things, mental health doesn't just trickle down, it trickles up. Um, you've probably heard me say, Susie, over the years that each of us is only as happy as the least happy member of our family. Oh, yeah. We may have everything on the outside and people might look at us and say, I mean, why would they have issues? Why would there be any issues in their world? They have everything. They have money. They have cars. They have jobs. They have whatever. But as you know, you know, each of us is only as happy as the least happy member of our family. And so um, when it comes right down to it, um, mental illness may not affect just the kids, but we're talking about the parents and, and, and siblings and other family members. So as we kind of think about this dynamic, this idea that we've got somebody who has depression, somebody who has anxiety, somebody who has suicidal thoughts or whatnot, we got to really think about the whole family. Think about, think about the people before and the people after and think about those kinds of things. And I think it, I think it'll raise everybody's awareness that, um, this may not be as foreign to our family unit as, 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 as maybe we think, at least at first blush in most cases. Absolutely. And the more people I talk to, the more everyone says, oh yes, I have uncle, brother, cousin, grandparent, parent, who has struggled with mental illness. That's right. Yes. There, honestly, I can think of very few people that I've interacted with that mental illness does not affect them in some way, shape, or form. Well, and, and the other thing that we really haven't talked about that I think is something that's least noteworthy is that in this day and age, we're in the state of Missouri. Um, we've got cannabis, uh, recreational cannabis, 
I think it might be the single biggest, most colossal mistake that our government has ever done. And I will tell you that um, the overwhelming majority of drug screens that I'm doing on, on the hospital side of things are positive for cannabinoids. And, um, and people, um, if you can fog a mirror, I mean, we should be worried about being able to get a license for medical marijuana on Groupon. There mm. should, we should be worried about that. So um, I've had people show me their, their medical license and, and uh, you know, with the, the signed by the Secretary of State of the state of Missouri. And look, I've got a license signed by the Secretary of State. I've actually been accused uh, and threatened uh, that they were going to turn me into whomever uh, for refusing to give them psychotropic medications because of that. Because, yeah, they. Wow. Yes. Wow. Wow is right. But wow, I mean, the fact that we are, uh, we have legalized and normalized, you know, cannabis out there uh, for medical reasons. And, and, and I don't know if you've ever looked at the criteria for it. But the criteria um, includes sort of it's it's if you could fog a mirror with your breath, uh, you, you you qualify for it. And so um, what we're now realizing is that when when you and I, Susie, were kids, uh, the THC concentration was about you know five percent. Uh, marijuana is now approaching twenty percent. If you have the sensimilla variety, it's upwards of seventy to eighty percent, which is neurotoxic and. What kind do you think our kids are getting a hold of? And so uh, we've had kids that, you know, present with acute psychosis and, and adults with psychosis, um, actively hallucinating, um, and, and they, they, for all intents and purposes, look like they've got schizophrenia. Um, and even after the, the, the cannabinoids are out of their system, they continue to have psychosis. They continue to hear voices and see things that aren't there and be delusional. And um, And so... This is going to be the new problem, um, mm. coast to coast, because you know our politicians see this as a means of augmenting the tax taxes tax basis, and so as we really think about this, we need to think about like what are we actually doing to the brains? The brains of kids aren't done developing until they're 25 years of age. What part of the brain are we talking about? We're talking about the frontal lobe. What does the frontal lobe do? It's the executive function center. It's the part of the brain that says. Don't do this, Susie or Brian, because this is a really bad idea. There's going to be a bad consequence to this. That part of the brain is not yet done developing. And so as we think about the impact of, of, of the substances, we are all going to be dealing with this one way or another, whether you think that you're going to or not. We're just now realizing what the consequences are with other co, you know, co-prescribed medications, if you will, uh, with cannabinoids. Mm. We know that uh, marijuana um, affects the P450 enzyme system, the liver. The liver's ability to metabolize certain drugs that are handled through a pathway known as 3A4. Um, we know that that can affect many of the other psychotropic effects of, of, of other medicines that we would prescribe. So now, as clinicians out there, we, we have to actually now start thinking about that. Um, you know, So I'll throw that out there to you because I, I think this is going to be you know, an ever, ever increasing problem that we'll all be dealing with here. If not now, it's soon. I'm glad you brought that up because, again, I've talked to several parents whose children have struggled with one even said marijuana addiction. Yeah. And since you did bring it up, would you address addiction just briefly and how marijuana is well, part of that cycle? So... 
there's a lot of different theories. You know, one theory with 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 addiction is something referred to as the gateway theory, where one door opens up a bigger door, which opens up a bigger door. It starts with nicotine and, and cigarettes and alcohol, moves up to canna- cannabinoids, marijuana, derivatives thereof, and then gets to more hardcore things. Um, but um, but we also know that um, marijuana is 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 a means to um, escape, if you will. And so lots of kids who will come my way, adolescents and adults, I mean all ages, that'll come my way, they're having life failure issues. They're failing out of college. They're having issues in high school. They're having issues with peer groups. They've pulled out of, of many different aspects of their lives and they're smoking marijuana. And what do they all say to, to me? They all say, I'm not addicted, I can quit anytime I want. So I hear this as a common thing all the time. So I usually address it. It's the pink elephant in the room at the very beginning because I, I want to want to get a drug screen on almost everybody who comes in. Um, so one thing that I'll say is is that you know if you know if you're so you know not addicted, then let's let's go down the path of you going without. Let's do it for six months while I'm giving you medication and let's see what happens. So if if I'm right, then great. If you're right, then you can just go back to using it again. So I'll ask them to put a pause in and, and to see if they can do it. Um, oftentimes I can get them to buy into a plan, not forever. Not, I mean, many of them will say, I'm not going to agree to forever, but I'll agree to do it for, for a few months and we'll see what happens. Um, I can't tell you the number of n- number of times that that comes up, and and you know sometimes they stick with it, and sometimes they don't. And when they don't, it, it underscores the impact of, of of the addiction piece. The idea of abuse versus dependence that that's really gone away. That's old hat. We don't really use the term uh, abuse versus dependence anymore. We used to think that dependence meant that you had withdrawal s- symptoms or sequelae as a result of not using. Um, that's no longer sort of in fashion. That's out of fashion to sort of talk a bit about it in that term. Now we talk about the number of life impairments that it causes. The, the new DSM criteria says that you have a substance use disorder instead of dependence or abuse. And then it really quantifies the number of life impairments that you have, whether it's work, whether it's you know, life, relationship, you know, all the different facets of your life. And it really, really kind of goes in. And and then it really asks, you know, what is the consequence of your use? You know, how significant, how much impairment is it causing with your work? Um, I treat a lot of adults who, who work at United Auto Workers, who work at GM and Ford, and are working on the line. And um, they do take that kind of stuff very seriously, as they should. They're building, you know, right. vehicles that, that that take our family members, you know, around and, and whatnot. We would like for them to not be impaired as Correct. a result of that. Um, and so those are the things that that, that, that come up. That's, that's the way we really think about it. And um, But it's just the beginning. I mean, you know, we think that um, because we're insulated here in the, in the suburbs that we're not having issues with things like methamphetamine, um, alcoholism. I'm seeing, I still, I st- treat lots and lots of people who have alcohol use disorders, who are drinking and driving and, 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 and have repeat offenders. It's, you know, people will say to me, oftentimes in an interview, I'll say, do you have any legal issues? They'll say no. And I'll come back and ask them, how many DWIs have you had? And they look at me funny and they'll say, well, I've had two or three, but I've gotten them off my record. So it's a function of how much money they have in the bank and and 
the high power attorney they were able to afford to get them out of the problem. And so again, I ask all those questions. I have to, you have to ask it more than one way or you won't get the right answer to really gauge the severity or impairment of your patient. But what I hear you saying is parents pay attention because of the legalized marijuana. It is opening up an entirely new set of issues and problems. It is. And if we are coming in to see myself or any other clinician out there because of school failure, life failure, depression, suicidal ideation, anxiety, does it really make sense for us as parents to embrace or espouse or even acknowledge and accept um, our children using things like cannabis as a means of coping and forgetting the problem that they have at hand. We need some level of motivation. We need some level of stress in order to get from point A to point B. If we're going to take that motivation and that stress away by allowing our, our ch children to get high, if you will, um, how are we helping the situation? We're not. So if they don't care, they're not going to care more after they, after they get high. So, mm. so we've got to, we got to, we got to be sober. We got to figure that, that part out. And the impaired driving part is something that really scares me. What, what's the measurement for impaired driving with marijuana use? Well, that's going to be a real question. And that's a hotly debated, um, I, I know several police officers in the state of Kansas, for example, and if they catch you with marijuana, you're going to be in trouble. Not just not just get a ticket. So you're 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 probably go going to meet a judge. So um, and that that I believe should be the standard. So now there's some rumor that um, a lot of the politicians in Kansas are wanting to legalize cannabis in Kansas as well. So that may or may not happen. But if it does, you know, all it's going to do is augment the problem that we're already seeing right now. Any other topics or? issues you'd like to address? Well, uh, just, just I, I might want to clarify one thing that you had said earlier. Okay. And we talked about the idea of medicine and the speed of, of, of response mm -hmm. with medication. You know, we know that uh, medicine that um, most antidepressant medications hit one of three or all of three neurotransmitters. You, you know, one is, one is serotonin, one is uh, basically dopamine, and the third one is norepinephrine. And um, that's sort of the triad, if you will. It's the holy grail of, of the neurotransmitters that help with depression and to some degree anxiety, more so with serotonin. Um, but there is something that happens um, in people uh, up to age 25 that's referred to as the black box warning. And if you look at your medication bottles, if you look at um, any of the paperwork from the pharmacy, there is a Food and Drug Administration imposed black box warning with antidepressant medicines. And the theory is, is that children up to age 25 um, attempt and, and are at risk for suicide more than the average population beyond that age. Could that age 25 be that magic number when the brain is done myelinating? Probably. The original black box warning went up to age 18, and they lost all the kids who left home to go to college. And so what do college kids do? Well, they don't sleep, they drink, they don't take their medication. And so these antidepressants, while they, again, I told you I, I've got a, a, a passion for them, um, but they, they also need to be taken responsibly. And it's important that just because somebody is responding and they, it appears to have helped with their anxiety and their depression, that we as parents need to make sure and caregivers 
family members need to make sure that our loved ones are are are, are paying attention to this idea of, of of the increased risk of drinking, not taking their medicine. These some of these antidepressants that have shorter half lives, for example, you skip even one dose, it increases the risk of of of, of suicide. Let's say they've got a partially responding depression, partially responding anxiety, meaning they still have some residual symptoms. When they abruptly discontinue that medication and maybe they go drink, alcohol by itself is a downer, but alcohol on top of antidepressant medications is a very bad combination. Um, Serotonin um, basically will magnify the downer effects of alcohol. So one drink has the downer effect on the nervous system of five drinks, if you will. So it's important that we pay attention to that with people of all ages who are taking psychotropic medications. Um, As much as I love the medication, the medicine is is not the end-all, be-all for everything. So we need to make sure we're continuing to monitor that. If we're sending our kids off to college and our kids are on Lexapro or any antidepressant out there and they're not consistent, and they're not taking their medicine consistently or their lifestyle is inappropriate uh, because it's not consistent with somebody who's healthy, getting enough sleep, all those kinds of things, then we need to be worried and we need to make sure we're, 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 we're taking some extra steps there. It's just like if my child had diabetes and I sent my child to college, I wouldn't just say, well, good luck and I hope you remember to take your insulin every day and yeah. check your sugars. It's, it's exactly like that. And yeah. I think, I hope, eventually we get to the place where we are realizing that mental illness is equivalent to having any other chronic health condition like diabetes. I hope so, too. I hope it's something that can be talked about in the same same way. And also covered by insurances and treated by society as such. Absolutely. I had to just get that in there again. That was good. (laughs) Well, Dr. Brian Barash, I really, really appreciate you taking the time to share your incredible expertise with our listeners. I have no doubt that this is going to be a very helpful and effective episode. So thank you again. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And this is this episode of the Just a Mom podcast. If you or someone you know is struggling with suicidal thoughts or ideation, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 988. Once you smile again, take away the pain and clouds that keep covering up the sun. I want to see you smile again, take away the pain and them clouds that keep covering up the sun. If you found this podcast helpful, please subscribe and leave a rating and or a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, please share this with your friends and anyone you think may find these interviews helpful. Thanks again for listening to Just a Mom.